we're the Oliver Twins. And you're listening to Desert Island Games on Retro Unlim. Trapped on an island with nothing to do. What games would you take there with you? With no one else around, you could go insane without your desert island games. Everyone is tuning in to Jail 76 Gaming. This is Geo Six Gaming, uh, also known as John. Uh, today I've got some very special guests with me. They're, they are legends of the computer game industry, known as the Oliver, Oliver Twins. Welcome, sir. Um, hello, John. Hi, John. How are you today? We're very well, thank you. Good, good. Thank you very much again for um, joining me. Um, it's an honour to have you on. Oh, um, thank you very much. No problem. So this is a show called Desert Island Games, where I invite guests on to talk about the games they would bring on to Desert Island. Um, I don't know if we're going to have time for all that today, actually, because it's a really quick one um, compared to usual Desert Island Games, which last two hours. So I'm just going to get straight into it, if I can. So just a bit of trivia I found earlier before well, I was um, <laughs> doing some research. Apparently, at one point during the 1980s, it was reported that 7% of the all UK game sales were attributable to the, to the Oliver Twins. Sorry for starting. This is a piece of trivia that we definitely promote because we believe it to be true. Um, this was worked out back at that time. It was about 87, I think it was. Yeah. It? Maybe 88. Mid-87, and Chart Track, who... Um, were responsible for all the charts for the UK. They were tracking all sales, and they did a report, and it said that 15% of all sales across the UK were from Codemasters. And we were talking to Codemasters, and they said, well, that's kind of funny. They said, because pretty much 50% of all of our sales could be attributed to you two. So, therefore, that sort of made a new story. Codemasters published the fact that we thought it was possibly 7.5%, but we were saying, okay, let's just be on genocide and like knock it down a bit, 7% of uh, all UK sales. So I, we specifically remember all the figures and the press release that went out. And, yeah, I mean, we were selling a lot of games that, that year. We, we okay, had five out of top ten or something. I was just about to say the same statistic, that, yeah, we had five out of top ten. These, yeah. are, the, these are the dizzy games and the simulators. I think it was probably 88 thinking about it, because there were quite a lot of games in the charts at that point. We tend to keep um, lots of stuff. I'm actually looking across some boxes, because Philip's gone through his attic. We've got so much stuff from the old days. Uh, we don't chuck anything away. Uh, it's a good thing we've got big attics, actually. And somewhere we'll find all those original chart track uh Yeah, we never chuck anything away. The question is actually finding the blinking things. We're doing these uh, Let's Play videos at the moment, going back through our old games. And um, I'm going to actually start digging into the loft a little bit more and actually trying to get some better statistics, find some of the old drawings and concepts of of some of the classics that we wrote. Yeah, and we'll find the proof of that one. Excellent. So, obviously, one of the the series you're most famous for um, is Dizzy. 
Would I be correct in saying that? He does seem to follow us. Yeah. <laughs> no, we're very, we're very, very proud of Dizzy. And it's nice that people think fondly of it. I mean, it's funny because you go back and play it yourself as we have been. And it's all a bit crude. It's kind of what you could get away with, with very low power computers in 32K of memory and stuff. But we did manage to instill a character and a story and a sense of adventure into something. And people look back and remember it for that. Whereas actually it's not about the sort of classy graphics because you couldn't do it. You, you just couldn't. I mean, for, for the, for the time that we produced it, um, it was pretty much state of the art, um, and people played it for an awful lot of hours and had a lot of fun. Um, so, did you actually have a lot of kind of great ideas and things that you you couldn't do due to the limitations of the the hardware? It was all, it was always a case of looking at what a computer could do and what we could make that was entertaining within it. So you didn't have much memory and you couldn't move very much around the screen because some people have said to us, oh, it'd be nice if all those dizzy games had been sort of eight-way scrolling or like full scrolling around. And it's like, we were on a spectrum. I mean... <laughs> it'd be nice if there was some colour <laughs> that like, wasn't attributed. You, you couldn't move stuff around. I mean, we did experiment with having some scrolling screen games. There was um, Operation Gunship, which had a full eight-way scrolling or always scrolling um, screen, but suddenly all colours lost and all processing is just focused on scrolling the screen. When we thought, look, it's more in important in the case of Dizzy to make a kind of platform adventure where we spend time actually on making an interesting story with interesting puzzles. Uh, and quite a large landscape. I mean, um, it's quite amazing. It's 50 or 60 screens. Um, and when you actually work out, you've only got 32K, that's 32,000 bytes. If you load up any email and just look how many, how much K a single email takes, you're in the same ballpark as sort of a, a two-paragraph email. It's an amazing feat. Yeah, I was just, I was looking at that statistic myself. It's amazing to think that an email is bigger than a Disney game. <laughs> uh, the, there is a funny thing, and I used to be obsessive about this, and I used to go through my code. Um, looking for places I could save single bytes and we'd be looking at ways that we could sort of nudge the graphics and all of our sprites were clipped within the pixel uh, to make sure that we were using the maximum of every single byte. And it's just insane to think that we would do that now. I mean, I think the only time you ever do it now is Twitter where you're going, oh, God, I'm one character over. <laughs> it's, a, it's a skill, actually, I've got. I'm getting the hang of Twitter now. And it's, it's bringing back that old skill of save every so, bite. Yeah, so, <laughs> yeah, so if, if anyone is, uh, who does Twitter knows the fact about how to get your message across in a certain number of characters. 140. <laughs> we used to do it with a full game, and we used to literally, um, I had various little tricks i do in code where I would just try and save. And you, go, jump, you jump relative instead of jump um, absolute. Yeah, because that will save one byte every time. Yeah, so, yeah, there's all sorts of... Uh, That's one of the instructions. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, okay. Um, I remember the one which was XOA, which is a single instruction could load the accumulator with zero, which usually you are a load instruction and a number. But it was so often you wanted that number to be zero that I found a single instruction, and it's like, wow. And um, so you get these really weird things just to save one byte all over the place. Yeah, and um, we used to do other uh, clever tricks. Obviously, there's loads and loads of compression um, going on um, in all the games. Although, <laughs> but fairly, it's fairly simple compared to the compression algorithms uh, um, nowadays. It's fine, because th th that's all the 8-bit 
um, computers could actually handle with simple compression, things like run length compression. But um, it was quite funny that we um, did lots of simulator games where they had um, computer drones, bikes, cars, jet skis. Um, and we, rather than using real AI, awful to actually do a decent uh, recording, but what people don't realize is not only did we have to drive the car efficiently or race the bike efficiently from a um, artistic point of view, but we were actually also having to do it in under 100 bytes um, because that's all the memory we have in each of them to to save off the, the recorded playbacks. Yeah, and we used the, this routine again and again for all of our simulators, and it was quite funny because you might have, say, a left and a right, like rotate left and right and accelerate and decelerate but because of the way we wrote our uh, key record routine it would say right you're pressing left for 12 frames but what we had to do is make sure that you didn't press two keys at the same time because we thought if you start having the combinations of multiple keys uh, then that would take more memory and so we were playing it in a way that would be memory efficient. Yeah, and these these cars can drive around tracks with 100 bytes, uh, which anyway, we, we were quite proud of at the time. Um, and we certainly, we use that idea quite a lot in our games. I love Grand Prix simulators. I'm a big racing game fan, so that was probably one of my earliest racing game memories. To talk about okay, well, we did a Let's Play video. We were playing it uh, about a week ago. So, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Ago, yeah. <laughs> it's actually quite hard. <laughs> it's, it's, <laughs> yeah, I think we said on the video it's quite hard and it does steer a bit like a boat. Um, but it was a it was a challenge, and I do remember people enjoyed it, and we had a bit of fun trying to actually play it a couple of weeks ago. But times moved on quite a lot, hasn't it? <laughs> Particularly in racing games. Top down racers are yeah definitely in the past. I think. Yeah. I remember commenting on that video in, in hindsight. I think I said I played it on the Atari 65XC, but I was looking earlier on. It didn't come out for the Atari 65XC, so I must have played it on the Commodore 64. That same could true. It was on the uh, Commodore yeah. 64, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Did, you have, did you ever develop any games for the 65XC? Because that was my computer choice when I was younger. I'm sorry we didn't. What actually happened was we developed everything. Well, we started, I mean, the, the background to our computing. Our older brother got the ZX81. Make this we, quick. I'm gonna, yeah, a, <laughs> I'll try and make this story quick. ZX81, uh, he put it under the family telly and promptly found girls. Um, so he always left it there. Uh, we'd come home from school and actually start playing with it. We really, really wanted to write a game on it. And about all we could handle was writing a very slow version of Pong. Um, but that was actually okay. That was a good starting point. But we realized very, very quickly we needed a computer with more memory, more power and graphics. So we then um, got a Dragon 32, so this would have been um, late um, 82. We wrote lots of games on the Dragon 32, published, uh, got some published listings um, in computer and video games in late 83. Um, with the money we got from that, we kind of pumped that into a BBC Micro because that was the everything, the, the, the cool kids with money at BBC Model Bs um, in 84. Um, so we bought one of those and started producing uh, learning assembler, doing more arcade games. But then we realized we were up against the likes of your David Brabens and Ian Bells of this world and Acorn Soft and stuff. And we just thought, Jeff you know, Crammond with Brevs, that yeah, was so yeah, impressive. Jeff Crammond is like, we can't compete with these guys. So we thought, look, there's this new computer on the block. It's the, Am the Amstrad CPC. Um, this looks like a really nice machine. Um, in fact, it was a 664 that we got. So we got this drive. Um, 
a, an external uh, assembler so that we didn't so that you a could... decent colour monitor um, so that keyboard a proper keyboard so we basically started programming all of our games on that um, the, I think the first one I think was Killipede it may, may have been something before that um, and so we were producing games on the Amstrad for about a year and then Codemasters after the success of Super Robin Hood sent us a Spectrum 48K as a gift as, as, just as and a gift get, said, it, get it working on this <laughs> wouldn't it be nice if you could kind of Put, put your games under this because we could sell a lot more. Um, so the next game we did was Ghost Hunters, and we um, decided to use this um, sort of 48K Spectrum with a rubber keyboard to see if we could get um, our games working on that. Actually, programmed we programmed the Spectrum via a cable linked to the printer port on the back of the Amstrad and, and sent it through the cable. Um, but that actually worked surprisingly well. Um, and hence the reason we, we got a really good system for developing games very, very quickly. I mean, that was probably one of the secrets of our success was not to use the computer that you were programming on. Because it didn't matter how many times you just press compile, send. Within a few seconds, it would go across this um, RS-232 <laughs> interface port. I remember that. Um, and it would run on the spectrum, and if it crashed, it didn't really matter. You just sort of you haven't you haven't, you haven't lost your code that was you, sort of that you were just writing, and you didn't need to keep on pressing save or anything. So we were on an Amstrad, we had a disk drive, we could um, save very quickly to the disk drive. We could press compile, it would turn up on the spectrum. If it crashed, bang! Within ten seconds, you were up and running again uh, with like bug fixed. Um, that was. And that's what... It wasn't 10 seconds. No. I think compiling times are still two or three minutes. Okay. <laughs> but the, the point is, it was fast turnaround, and we found we came across other people who had written um, the full Spectrum games, and they were using the Spectrum themselves. So they'd be writing code, saving it out, probably on those little tiny uh, zip drive things, which would take a little bit of time. Then they'd compile it. And then if it all crashes, they'd have to sort of reboot the computer, load up the zip drive, and do it all again. And it's like... My God, that'll take you ages. So this was the kind of Z80 camp. These were, both computers were based on the Z80 processor. And the 6502, Commodore 64, was based on the 6502, the other chip and the other camp. In the school playground, you were either a Commodore fan or a Spectrum. There was always been that. Spectrum it was. It's fan. like, are you an Xbox or, or, or PlayStation? PlayStation fan. Are you um, a yeah. Nintendo or a Sega? So are um, you a... Uh, so Mega OST. Yeah. By the time we'd written Robin Hood, we were just out of school, um, but we were definitely in the Z80 camp and the Spectrum and the Amstrad camp. Um, but Codemasters obviously wanted our, the, our successful games to be ported over to the Commodore 64. So they actually just hired people um, to convert our games to the Commodore 64 at first, and then to other machines. There's yeah, the, and the Amiga. ST Amiga. Typically copied to and PC. PC, yeah. Um, so, so we actually just focused for a good two or three years just on the Amstrad and Spectrum. But there is an interesting point, actually, because did we actually ever write on the Commodore 64? The answer is no, but we got very close because we wrote Dizzy on the NES, the Nintendo Entertainment System, and we just literally bought one out of the shop and tried to work out how to get it working because Nintendo came in with a sort of dev agreement where, where we just got one off the shop. I mean, nowadays, you do it with phones. If you want to write a game on a phone, you go and buy the phone, and you just put it into... In your first engineering. Dev mode. Working, yeah. yeah. Um, so we, we did this with the Nintendo, opened it up, looked at the board, and going, oh, it's 6502. So we just said, oh, that's like a BBC or Commodore 64. And we, we sort of plugged in uh, our cable so that we could send code 
onto the ram. With some help from some guy, the Codemasters. Yeah. Um, but it was a similar sort of principle to the Amstrad of the Spectrum, exactly the same idea. And we just sort of compiled some com- Commodore 64 code onto it and roughly got it working. And we worked out that actually it pretty much ran Commodore 64 stuff. It was a very, very similar similar system. And actually, um, NES was very, very nice. We really liked it. We had scrolling screens, fast fluid sprites, games running at 30 frames a second. And you look back and go, oh, actually, the Commodore 64 was obviously quite a good machine because it's kind of like this, and we quite like this. Yeah, so that was uh, Fantastic Dizzy we wrote. And theoretically, Fantastic Dizzy would have probably ran on the Commodore 64. to adapt to new languages like new computers coming out in different languages and it's, it's all about syntax um, it, it, it takes a few days weeks to sort of get get your head get around, around syntax the, but, the then it's, but then it's all the same sort of principles you, you, you copy across all the same sort of things so to make an analogy with people now if you were writing a, a document in Word and somebody suddenly said, no, I want you to write it in Google Docs or another word processor, you'd be slightly frustrated for a while trying to go, where the hell is the sort of magnify the font or reformat or change the color of the font? But they're roughly in the same place and they roughly did the same thing. It just slows you down for a bit. Yeah. Okay. It's interesting. The closest I've ever really got to programming myself is when I used to buy these um, Atari user magazines and they had, like, type your own game yeah. <laughs> code into your computer. Yeah. Never got I mean, into work. It took a long time to type those listings in. Um, give you a funny story about typing listings. Our first typing listing um, was... <laughs> make it quick. Yeah, no, no. It's for computer video games in late um, 83 and for the Dragon 32... And the funny thing was that we wanted to get this thing published. We'd never had anything published. So um, we wrote a very, very efficient game. It was kind of a top-down uh, racing... Um, hey, it's road, an endless runner. An endless runner. <laughs> top-down endless runner game. Uh, race game. It was quite it was quite crude, but we were trying to get the a listing as efficient as possible because we knew that other people would have to type it. So having made the code as efficient as possible on the Dragon 32, we... Um, didn't have a printer, so we hand-wrote it all out very, very tidily. We gave it to our mum, who worked at the local technical college. She had access to a typewriter, but we're talking typewriters. We're not talking digital things with any memory. <laughs> Big clunky keys. Big clunky keys. So she then um, typed it all in. Um, there were a couple of typos, because we had to then type it, re- retype it back in to make sure that it was perfect. A couple of typos. Mum, those spaces are really important. Um, so she then had to redo it, and she had to redo it several times. We had to take it back, type it in several times. We eventually got perfect um, copy of what what ran perfectly. We sent it off to Computer and Video Games. Um, with a nice letter, covering letter. With a covering letter saying this this listing um, is a nice game um, and would work very well as a, a type in listing. They gave us a phone call a few days later saying this is great. Yes, we'll uh, pay you fifty pounds, and we chuffed the bits with that. And they published it, and it came out in the magazine. Uh, in the magazine, and we didn't think much more of it. No, it was several years later that somebody turned around to us and said, 
why didn't you save it onto a cassette and send a cassette to them? Yeah, and well, so we met somebody and he said, do you know, he says, we, we had it and we didn't know what it was until we typed it in. And he says, like, it was only by chance that he said we, we bothered to type it in and thought, oh, actually, this is all right. <laughs> it's like, but we didn't have a printer. That's what we, we were conscious that we didn't have a printer and it was a typing listing. So if we couldn't print it, we had to make it look professional. So we typed it and <laughs> we didn't think to send them a cassette tape. Yeah, would have been so much easier. Oh, hindsight's a wonderful thing. Absolutely. <laughs> it makes a funny story now. Yeah. So, um, I, f- I, f- I counted these earlier on, so I think I've got it right. I think, including spin-offs, there was 13 Dizzy games, is that correct? Well, I think that is the number that I've right. It sounds unlucky, but it sounds about right. Yeah. So, well, the 13th killed the series. That's how lucky, unlucky it was. I'm going to ask you the probably the hardest question and also the question you probably ask the most, but do you have a favourite of the, the Dizzy games? Fantastic Dizzy. Fantastic Dizzy combined so much and it was so large. That was um, the big Nintendo one that we did and we knew the Nintendo, when they came into it, they produced a cheap console with the plug-and-play cartridges. The problem was that the cartridges were very expensive. So we were going from games which were either 199 and 299 or 399 I think they got up to, to suddenly it was going to be £35. And it was like, or $49 in America, because this was our first game that we launched in America. So we'd just suddenly gone to the extreme. Um, and it was 256K of memory, I think. Or, I no. It, anyway, it was significantly more. And what we effectively wanted to do that with that game, we were proudest at that point of Fantasy World. And we just wanted to try to put all the Dizzy games we'd ever made into one game. So actually, within Fantastic Dizzy, it's on the NES, it tried to combine all the puzzles of the, the first three, but also Bubble Dizzy, Dizzy Down the Rapids, and another one. There's actually sub-games in there yeah. that were based... Uh, There's a minecarting game. Yeah, there was a minecarting that was more based on Indiana Jones. Uh, but no. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, but yeah, they never made it out as a, as a game on its own, but there's a nice sort of uh, minecart chase. Uh, and so, yeah, it's fantastic, Dizzy, on the, the NES was kind of the one that we, we laboured over most. And actually, to be perfectly honest, that's what sort of turned us into uh, running a company because it took us about a year. Um, and we just thought, we can't spend a whole year on a game. It's, <laughs> we've got to get some help here. before that of averaging a game just over a month we, we'd aim to do a game a month yeah, they sometimes. usually took a little bit longer but, yeah. but we were in that ballpark and then just suddenly this Nintendo one but we were going to charge $50 or 30 £35 pounds. so we we put everything into it um, and that was a whole year uh, which at that point it's funny because we talked to other developers and there was like well, well that's normal that's normal but to us it was horrendous and we just thought we're going to we, we had money coming in from things it's like well we're going to get some help we're going to sort of start employing people start employing people yeah my colleague at uh, Retro and Lim which is the kind of group I'm part of um, Stephen Richards he asked me to ask you this question um, he said that um, you developed an 8-bit CD system 
Um, oh yeah. What's your thoughts on that? <laughs> okay. Well, we love technology, right? Um, I, I particularly love anything that's got new technology, and we were there throwing cassette recorders against the wall in frustration of how bad they were at loading. And literally yeah. several cassette decks hit the wall. We were just so angry that we couldn't sort of save a tape and load it back. And it's like there was a time where like money was sort of, we, we had a reasonable amount of money starting to come in and we just needed to master a game really nicely, make sure it runs several times so that we could master it. And you're going, oh my God, I can't yeah, actually, actually save it onto a cassette reliably, just re- just load the damn so, thing back. So we went through a phase of buying different makes of uh, cassette recorders. So we'd have Sony's and Panasonic's and uh, various different types. And, and then <laughs> and then sometimes we'd just get so frustrated, we would just smash it against the wall. We'd just go, this damn thing. Because we had others. Because we, <laughs> we, we're trying desperately hard to find a decent cassette recorder. And it didn't necessarily go with the brand i mean at that point you'd just gone well the sony's the best it's actually anyway the point was that sony came out with uh, C- the cd player and it was like wow so we now started while we were programming listening to cds and thinking wow this is just so clear and if you recorded to these there would be no problem at all they're absolutely perfect um and so we just started looking into how you'd master onto a CD. And we were working quite closely with Ablex cassette duplication place, which boasted that they could now master CDs. So So you had to work out how to do that. There was a guy called Ted Caron at Codemasters who was kind of looking into this, and he got a DAT machine, DAT, which was like, it looked like, kind of cassettes almost and you recorded it onto these and these were much higher quality you'd record the signal onto that you would send it off to um ablex and they put it onto a wheel back a a cd that you could then replay it so at first we were sort of sending um regular recordings um, at normal speed and seeing the quality that they'd come back but because of posts and everything else it would take two or three days to come back it did take a long time turnaround but we were able to sort of save to a this that tape send it off they send back a a, a cd we'd load the game a spectrum game off a cd and go wow that's so cool and it worked absolutely 100 percent. so then we started looking at speed loaders and effectively we were just upping the board rate sending it off and see if we could load it Uh, but each time you have to sort of code both sides of it. You have to code the, the saving and the loading. But yes, um, we we got it working, and then we realised blindingly fast when we. I mean, we got it down to about 20, under twenty seconds per game you could load. Um, and we're obviously the capacity of a CD player. We just went back and did a back catalogue, and I think it was twenty or so games on the on the CD. Um, and in fact, there was so much memory on, on the CD yeah, that we recorded it. Quite, they were all recorded twice. Yeah. yeah so, so you could actually get a screwdriver and just scratch it up, and it would still load because it would just like it would just you see the loading error on the first one, and then yeah. switch to the second one. Yeah. So, yeah, we were quite proud of that, but it was at the time where the spectrum was kind of dead anyway, and nobody had CD players. And we, that was, we, that, oh, no, no, that, I mean, that was that was its downfall commercially. <laughs> was that if you had the money to be able to afford a CD player. Then you had an ST or an Amiga. You had an ST or an Amiga at that point, and you were loading off discs anyway. Um, more we, discs. We, we were proud that we got it working, and yeah. we, we thought it was cool. Yeah. Yeah, I think it would have been pretty cool. 
Off. I mean, it worked. I mean, it, it worked. The game, the game, it went out into the shops and everything, but it didn't sell very well because if you had the money for a CD player, you yep. had the money for an SD or an Amiga. So, okay. Yeah. Next question. Yeah. Yes. Are you happy with that answer, Stephen? <laughs> yes. Oh, Stephen, yeah. yeah. Stephen put the question Stephen, in. Stephen's a kind of boss retro man, so yeah, you would ask that question. Anyway, um, the other thing I was looking into, um, was um, a thing called Dizzy Age. This is like for fans to make Dizzy games, is that? Yes, yes, the, the kind of t- tool suite for making um, a Dizzy game. Yes, um, and Yoke Folk promote it heavily. But what was the question? Well, has there been any good ones that you've played that people have made? Well, not recently, but I have to say we were aware that people had started doing it. Obviously, um, people had started making Dizzy games officially after we had left to go to Nintendo then more Spectrum games came out. and Big Red and people wrote yeah. some Dizzy games. Yeah. And, and, and we were fine with that. Um, but then we noticed that the, the Russians, it, <laughs> I just remember, it was like, hang on, there's a Dizzy game in Russia. It's like, hang well, on, it's not it, even one of ours. But this is, this is more post the internet and post 2000, where you suddenly started getting these kind of hobbyist game, Dizzy games turning up on the internet. And it's like, oh, that's a bit curious. Yeah, um, and... We, we were sort of like, well, we'd moved on by this point, so it didn't really bother us that uh, people were creating games on a spectrum um, when we were on console by this point. So we turned a blind eye to it and were quite chuffed, actually, because I remember playing them and thinking, oh, this is quite cool. And certainly those Russian ones, like, I don't quite know what I'm doing. Um, it kind of keeps on coming up with language, but you kind of get the idea. Um, and I know then that uh, one of them just made a tool set to make it easy, and then there's quite a flood of them. Um, yeah, right. And um, well, we, we uh, and we, 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 we've encouraged it. We, yeah, we've encouraged it. We did a um, judging um, one year, three or four years ago. We did some judging and gave yeah. some prizes and, and uh, invited the winners to, to the office and everything, took them out to lunch. Um, so, yeah, we kind of encouraged it. It's, I mean, it's, it's very cool. Yeah, yeah it's, a good, it's a good hobby. Um, we haven't, um, I wouldn't say we can remember what our favourite ones are, and I wouldn't say that we play them all because we're quite, quite busy. But, um, yeah, it's quite cool. So, I know, I know as well that there was a Kickstarter going for um, Reiteration Dizzy officially, but that didn't really work out in the end. Um, no, it's a bit sad that it didn't. Yeah. Um, I mean, the fact is, there had been this thing about whether we could sort of uh, write another Dizzy game or not write another Dizzy game. We contacted Codemasters and put together a pitch, and this was for a PlayStation 2. So that video is kind of out on the net of us proposing a pitch to um, Codemasters. But we were saying that if we went back to do it, we want to do it at the level of the games sort of for that console. So a new Dizzy game on the PlayStation 2 would have cost quite a lot. Um, and at that point, and, and it's understandable, they just didn't think that there would be a big enough market because Dizzy was generally only popular in the UK and people are focused more on a, a global market and it would be a difficult one. And at that point, they were very much focused on driving games. In fact, they still are. <laughs> um, but they were wanting to refocus on that and n- not do this. So it didn't happen um, but obviously there was a sort of, we couldn't really publish Dizzy with anything else. But then years later, a conversation came up and, and we just said, look, are we okay to just like self-publish a Dizzy or something? And we came to an agreement that we could. Um, and then it was like, well, okay, in theory we can, 
but if but what would we do? And we thought, well, we want to make something that's fairly respectable. We don't want to just go and do something that's really cheap. So we did ask for quite a lot of money, but I have to say we did have a high ambition to do something that was actually really, really nice. Um, and unfortunately, it, it, it didn't have the uh, the the fondness or whatever, the, ple- the, the I, pledging to make it happen. It didn't have the pledging to make it happen, but I think um, we were also learning ourselves about sort of social media. Um, I mean, these days, you don't go straight to a Kickstarter. You have to sort of get um, lots of followers, get a Facebook page, tell people what you're doing, and basically kind of whip up a load of enthusiasm before you even launch your campaign. Um, and you can tell from the number of likes and followers you get on your Facebook page whether you're going to stand a chance. Um, and, it, and if you if you can't get, attract people to like your Facebook page, talking about the fact you're thinking of doing something on Kickstarter, if you can't get them there, then you're never going to you're never going to make the Kickstarter work. Um, and quite frankly, we missed that trick. But it was early days of um, of Kickstarter and early days for us looking at it. We've kind of learned quite a bit. But equally, we've learned we wouldn't bother with Kickstarter because, um, thankfully, we're kind of beyond that. Although I, I would recommend Kickstarter to other people. I think yeah. I think it's wonderful that you can crowdsource sort of enthusiastic individuals to all give a little bit of money to make something happen. Uh, there's been so many good success stories, and I think it's absolutely wonderful that people can do this. Uh, it just didn't quite work for us. It didn't, it didn't quite work for I, us. We learned a lot of stuff. <laughs> but um, I've got no regrets. I, yeah. yeah. So it was an interesting learning exercise. Yeah. Oh, we'll never say never. We might still see a dizzy in the future, officially. Unlikely. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, I mean, you've seen you've seen Sky Saga. Um, I mean, we can do everything we ever wanted to do creatively um, and do it in Sky Saga. So why wouldn't we? Yeah. No. That's where our, our sort of passion is going now and for the next few years, probably. Uh, going to make it an absolute epic. Yeah. Okay, there's not really going to be a Desert Island Games aspect of this particular show because we've not got a time, but I'll just maybe do a mini one. So if you had to pick one game each that you would take to Desert Island, the only one game you could play for the rest of the time on this island, what would it be? Mario Kart. Yeah. Mario Kart. Yeah, Mario Kart. It's probably the one game. I'll have to take him with me because he's got a two-player game. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, uh, I don't think it's any secret. I mean, when it first came out on the Super NES, um, I absolutely loved it to bits. Used to play it with my girlfriend who turned into my wife, and I think we've we've played it ever since, and we've played it with the kids and the grown-ups. On every version. On every single version, and it's so funny because it's pretty much the same game. but it's a timeless classic, um, and it doesn't matter how much you played, it's still flipping enjoyable, and it's just got so much appeal, because when our kids were kind of only a few years old, you actually found that you could play it together. We were flipping good at it, um, but it's so well balanced that somebody who doesn't play it very well actually gets a lot of enjoyment out of it. Um, so does this desert island have internet? Yes. Oh, I'll go oh, for Sky Saga then. But, <laughs> but only to do certain things, like for online play, not to communicate with the outside world. No, 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 that's right. Yeah, 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 Sky Saga then. Because <laughs> yeah. the service is just going to get better and better and better. There's always going to be new stuff because it's procedurally generated. It'll just, it'll, it'll keep me occupied forever. It'll be fine. 
<laughs> not sure that's quite the answer he was looking for. It's a good plug, though. Yeah. I understand you get, well, one of you guys, I've heard one of you guys is going to play Blackpool's, um, is it yourself, Andrew, are you going? Well, yeah, um, okay, well, I could answer that. Yes, I'm definitely going, but I may be going as well. Um, we're gonna probably be talking about this in the next few days. So, yeah, there's a good chance that I'm going to. Is that going to be a, like a Q&A session then? So we're doing, um, well, Andrew's doing a talk on Dizzy. Yeah, it's, it was, the agreement was sort of like, oh, the idea was it's Dizzy in the morning, leave it a few hours, and then do something about Sky Saga in the afternoon. A big presentation, sort of stage show. Yeah, and um, as presentations are, it'll be a PowerPoint for 40-odd minutes or so. and With some nice videos and an animated Andrew and uh, probably animated me. Yeah, um, and then sort of a Q&A, and we're generally around there anyway. Cool, look, definitely look forward to that. Um, I'll be there on this Saturday, all day Saturday, so I'll see if I can... Yep, well, I'll definitely see you. Yeah, that's a good chance to see me too. <laughs> um, and um, we, we've uh, got Sky Saga that's running on, I think it's 12 machines there as well that people can just 16. come over. Oh, 16. That people can just come over and play as well. So that should be interesting. So I was, I was going to say anything you want to plug, but I'm guessing... Um, I think we've done that. Your YouTube channel is um, fairly new as well, so people should go and check it it's out. It's fairly new, but we're trying to put lots of interesting retro stuff. Um, it started when we did a charity uh, thing for Game Blast for special effects, where they wanted us to go back and play Dizzy to the uh, Twitch streamers. And it was quite funny because obviously we haven't really looked back at Dizzy, but we talk about it all the time. But we haven't actually loaded it up and played it. And it was like, oh, my God, it's just like it, it, it shocked us in some ways. It was basic. But then it's sort of like after 28 years or something, you're thinking, oh, my God, this is bringing back w- weird little memories. And we get little snippets of information while we were doing this Twitch streaming. And we thought, this is actually quite interesting. And it got a lot of feedback from people going, bloody hell, like, I remember that from so long ago. So we're going, we're slowly well, going through, trying to keep one a, one a week. And what, what was actually um, slightly, I mean, again, sometimes accidents happen in your favour, but the Twitch stream that they recorded of us playing it went wrong. Went wrong, and they didn't press the record button. Uh, it was like me. Uh, <laughs> it was really annoying. So they weren't it? able to archive it. So they it. said, "Oh yeah, about two thousand people saw it, and, and there were tweets going out." And it was very positive. It. And it was all positive, and people said, "Oh, I really enjoyed that." And, and we, we enjoyed it as well. And so we said, "Oh, I have to watch that." And they go, "Oh, we've got we've got to admit that we've actually haven't recorded it." It's like, "Oh, oh, mm-hmm. that's really annoying." So that made us think, well, hang on. We just recreated it. Why don't we just recreate that? Why don't we just do it again? It's like, it's not hard technology to sort of do it again. So we, so we redid it. Um, and then that was quite fun. And then we thought, well, why don't we redo some other ones as well? Sort of talk about the other games. Cause if you go onto YouTube, you can find sort of all of our old games. There's long play versions, there's review versions and everything else, but there's not the kind of definitive official version of any of them. Well, also they, they just play it. And they, they're talking about the game as they see it, 
But when we talk about it, we talk about what made us make the decisions that make the game like that and the memories of, of those things. Um, so we're giving a completely different inside perspective. It's the same as when you get a sort of director's commentary on a film. I don't know how many people yeah. sort of bother to listen to those, but it's actually quite interesting if you sort of load up some like really cool movie, like a Terminator, and, and put the director's commentary on, like you know the film, like the back of your hand. But then you suddenly hear James Cameron sort of saying, oh, the reason we did this... Um, was this, and we were trying to to get this, uh, and you're thinking that's really interesting yeah. that it could have actually gone a different way, but it didn't, um, yeah. and they did it for that reason. Yeah. And so it's like a director's commentary of us, but we're trying to just do it in a bit more of a fun way, where we're just playing it and just going, oh, do you remember this? Yeah, it's like, why do we do this? Yeah, <laughs> playing dizzy games, we're trying to work out how the what the puzzles were, quite obscure puzzles. So uh, we do apologise about some of those obscure puzzles. <laughs> It's all good fun. That's what internet cheats are for. <laughs> Agreed. Yeah, I've never, I've never did that with um, films, but I, I remember watching through the full series of Red Dwarf with the commentary on. That was quite interesting. Yeah, well, I've done it with a few films uh, of, of like classics that you love and you've watched so many times, and then suddenly you think, oh, director's commentary. And yeah, so that was the kind of theory, and you're putting a completely different perspective on on things uh, to do that, and people may find those interesting. Uh, we'd like to think so. Yeah, so that's the Oliver Twins channel on YouTube, and then every time we've ever put anything out on that... Oh, we more serious work. Yeah. yeah. Honestly, I think we're about to go off and do another Let's Play video, aren't we? Yeah. I'll it is. Can't do um, these work hours. I'm feeling a bit dizzy. Yeah, very good. Excellent. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's <laughs> guys, I'll, I'll let you go, and I'll, I'll let you guys know when it's up. And I'll give you the link. Oh, okay. That's very kind, John. Thank yeah. you very much. Cheers. Bye. Cheers.